0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Hebrews chapter 5 as we continue our study of this great, great book. Hebrews chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the book of Hebrews, in many ways, can be understood as the author is working to bring us to a place where we are stunned by the glory of the Son of God. Through chapters 1 through 4, he's been working and building his case so that we, as our hearts perceive him and see him as he is, as he truly is, That we would be stunned and amazed and moved in our deepest innermost parts at the glory of the very true Son of God. Here are a few ways that he speaks of it. He says, and to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? God has said that to no one but the Son of God himself. All of his enemies will be made into As it were, a footstool for Jesus' feet. And he also says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus isn't junior varsity deity. He is very God of very God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And it says also, through whom he created the world. Jesus is the agent of creation. He's obeying the commands of God as he is building out the cosmos. And he also says that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's not just the agent of creation. He's not just the one to whom all his enemies will be subjected, but the entire universe altogether will be his inheritance. It's abrupt, it's stunning, it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be a collision with your hearts. There he is, the risen, powerful, almighty son of God. And as you read these words, as I've said before, it's not that you are perceiving an idea of him through faith and by the spirit. If you are in Christ, you are truly perceiving the real son of God. Because the enemy works in the case of unbelievers to prevent them from seeing the real glory of Christ. In your case, if you believe in Jesus, you are perceiving, you are really receiving, basking in the glory of the resurrected son of God. There he is. Such a one exists, demanding and earning your full reverence, honor, love and life. He not only exists, he walked among us and he not only walked among us as a demigod or a ruler floating above the world, but as a servant. And he not only walked among us as a servant, but he became obedient, even to the point of death. And not just death. Death on a cross. And now... His glory, even though it was infinite before, and it was, he's co-equal with the Father, always glorious, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is called the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews. It is intensified. It is magnified. It's not that anything is being added to the glory of the Son. It's just being pushed out and blazing even brighter than it was before. In what he has done. It's been made known is shining forth because primarily of his resurrection. He has conquered the grave. It's based on Romans 1. He is declared to be the Son of God in righteousness by his resurrection from the dead. That when Jesus walks out of the tomb, even though he was the eternal son of God before, he's always been God. He is the word who was with God before the foundations of the earth were formed. It is manifested. He is declared to be the son of God and pronounced. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased at his resurrection. And in our text last week. We added two things to the pile that God says of the son at his resurrection. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've not even had a chance to explore the depths of that second statement. What does it mean fully? And the author is going to get us there. What does it mean that Jesus has been designated forever as a high priest? We're talking about this week and last week, about Jesus being our high priest, but we haven't yet gotten to all of the depths of what it means after the order of Melchizedek. We'll have to just set that aside. There are full chapters in Hebrews dedicated to that very question. So, for now, he is your high priest. He is your great high priest. And our response to that in our current day is one of confusion. Or one of a simple, what does that even mean? And this is no small matter. It's arguable that the author of Hebrews wrote the entire book in order to underscore and highlight this very thing about Jesus. That he is, in fact, your great high priest. Everything else that he has said about Jesus isn't in dispute with his hearers they don't question if he's the son of God they don't question if he is going to be the heir of all things they don't question if he is one day returning they don't question if he is ruling now alive his hearers aren't questioning that they are questioning however whether or not they should return to Judaism if literally we should have a different human high priest that's the issue for them For us, it's a little bit different because we don't have an alternative. It's not, is he my high priest or is he my high priest? Is it Jesus or is it this other guy after the order of Aaron? For us, it's, do I even need one? What even is a high priest? Or just a general, what? I don't even understand. What? Jesus is my great high priest? Thanks, I guess. But let's move on and talk about do's and don'ts, right? This is no side matter or interesting theological inquiry for Bible students or Bible nerds. This is everything for you. This is the end goal. It's arguable again that the author of Hebrews is even proving that Jesus can't be your savior unless he is your great high priest. And this is such a glorious title for Jesus. The glory of this office, as we looked at last week, it's so high and lifted up that not even Jesus, the eternal son of God, would take this office himself. He waited until God said, you are the high priest. Think about that in comparison to how Jesus talks about his own life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down of my own accord, I am able to take it up again. He talks about his life that way almost flippantly. It's my life. I lay it down. I take it up. But he, even Jesus, talking about his life that way, will not reach out and grasp this office of the great high priest. That's stunning. Now with setting the stage to talk more about and explore more of the heights and depths and the glory of Jesus, our great high priest, what are we to do? Does it even make sense to do that today? There are so many points this week for many reasons where the sorrow in my heart and knowing the sorrow in others hearts that I wanted to just throw up my hands and say, now is not the time. For one of our beloved members has passed away, but, but every Sunday is a life or death matter. Every Sunday is a life or death event. The apostles say to Jesus after he says to them, do you want to go away as well? In John 6, Peter says, where will we go? You have the words of life. And if you want to turn there, I'll read to you what I believe was the last section out of Psalm 19 that we read with thee in our fellowship. Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Every Sunday we gather to feed on the word of God because it is our very life. My soul clings to the dust, but your word is life. So since this is the case. And what about this topic? Why Jesus being the great high priest? Why? that specific. Sure, every Sunday we could just gather together and I could just explain to you the basics of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place for our sins. He was resurrected, walked out of the grave on the third day, and he promises to return. And those who believe in him will be with him forever. We could come together every Sunday and I could just say that and it would be true. And it would help us. But What about this idea of Jesus being our great high priest? Are we just confusing the issue? Hebrews 5 verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good and evil. Therefore. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Yes, the gospel is sufficient. And it's it's part of his point that if you really understand the gospel, you want to move forward. You want more of him. Do you want that? Do you want the solid food? As I talked about last week, do you want to know Christ? Do you think you know him as well as you ought right now? Let's push on to the solid food. So the question the author is answering in this text is, how can Jesus specifically be your sympathetic High priest. This is the root of many issues in our lives as believers. I said this multiple times last week and the week before. If we could just embrace this idea and understand what the author is saying here and all the implications bringing in all of the Old Testament, what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, it would address so many issues in our hearts and in our lives. And I'll show you how this has expressed itself. This is an old, very old hymn from a guy by the name of Isaac Watts. The title is the joy with joy. We meditate the grace. With joy, we meditate the grace of our high priest above. His heart is made of tenderness. And ever yearns with love. Touched with the sympathy within He knows our feeble frame. He knows what sore temptations mean. For he has felt the same. He, in the days of feeble flesh, poured out his cries and tears. And in his measure, feels afresh what every member feels. He'll never quench the smoking flax. But raise it to a flame. The bruised reed he never breaks. Nor scorns the meanest frame. Then let our humble faith address his mercy and his power. We shall de- obtain delivering grace in every needful hour. He's reflecting on these very words that we just read. When you understand the tenderness And the mercy and the great lengths Jesus went through to become a humble and broken and weak individual so that he could minister to you as your sympathetic high priest that changes the way you think about God. That changes the way you view him, how you feel towards him, what you're feeling in your heart when you desire to obey. Is it out of obligation or white knuckling obedience and conformity to rules? Or do you see the brokenness and lowliness of your Savior who will not quench a smoking flax and will not break a bruised reed? That's you. That's me. Last week, talked about how Jesus can be our sympathetic high priest because he humbled himself and did not take this position on himself. And also, we saw that he can be our sympathetic high priest because he tasted death for everyone. He was only able to be appointed as our great high priest after he walked out of the tomb. So he had to go through death to go through that pain and suffering, and even taste death, so that he could forever be your high priest. And our text today is an invitation, a summons even to the solid food. And it's not just as a difficult teaching. What it's showing us is how good this solid food is. Yes, the milk is necessary. Yes, we might be in a place in our walk with the Lord where all we can consume and digest is milk, but the solid food is much better. And as I try to explain this, understand that I'm not just trying to convince you of some intricate way of thinking about Jesus. This is your very life. Scholars have said that verses 7 through 10 are actually a hymn from the early church. So with that in mind, that this is something that our brothers and sisters in Christ from over 2000 years ago, perhaps have sung. Let me read it again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek." We begin with this phrase, in the days of his flesh. And we need to understand this. He's not just saying that Jesus was only incarnate during his life here on earth. Since the incarnation. Which let me define that for you. The incarnation is Jesus. Before he came into the earth. Did not have a body. Was a spirit forever with God. The logos forever with him. Ruling and reigning with God. Over all the universe. Did not have a body. Through the incarnation. However Jesus takes on human flesh. And he now continues. Into all eternity. Being human. And being God. It's a mystery. We don't have time to plumb the depths of that. We've done that before. But the idea here is in the days of his earthly flesh, in the days of his sojourning here, when he tabernacled among us, when he walked with us during the days of his mortal flesh. Christ is immortal now. But there was a time when he wore mortal flesh. This is a glorious mystery. He did not just take on physicality. He didn't just take his spirit and clothe it with matter, right? He didn't just take a perfect human body and put that on over a spirit and animate it. He took on our brokenness. Our feeble frame, as the hymn says, our weaknesses. He had to deal with growing up as a young boy. Dealing with the problems, the pains. Our feeble flesh, he took on, he did not have a sin nature like we did. He did not have an inclination to sin, but he was tempted and tried like we are. And here's the thing, it was a willing submission on his part. Have you ever seen a dad wrestling with his kids and he ties his hands behind his back or even blindfolds himself to make it a fair fight? This is in a sense what Jesus did. He's intentionally limiting himself, intentionally foregoing his power and his rights, taking on feeble, broken flesh. So when someone says, God knows what you're going through. That's true, but it's not just true because of God's omniscience. He knows every thought. He knows everything. He knows the name of every star. He knows the identity of every molecule in the universe. Like He has it all. God is omniscient. But when someone says God knows what you're going through, a better way to say that maybe is Jesus knows what you're going through more than you do. Because he experienced it himself. And it's not like us. We are of sin. We are conceived in unrighteousness. All We are shot through and through with sin. For Jesus, it's like someone standing on the outside of a hot pool of water, feeling that shock of heat when you begin to step in. He is holy and pure and just. And so him stepping into brokenness and taking persecution and being around sinners is more difficult for him than it is for you. Because it's a shock. And in many places, even in the gospel, it says, and he was astonished by their unbelief. It's not like Jesus didn't know what unbelief was. But existing forever in perfect harmony with the Father and then entering brokenness, he feels the pain of it. God knows what you're going through because Jesus has taken it on willingly. So when the psalmist says in Psalm 103, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. He knows that now because he has become brokenness. He has become flesh. He has become dust with us. Jesus can be your sympathetic great high priest because he not only knows our frame, he clothed himself in weakness. He knows. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. This phrase, offered up, actually carries a priestly tone. This is the same word that would describe what a high priest would do in the Old Testament, offering up sacrifices. So it takes until Jesus' resurrection for him to be appointed as the great high priest. But even in all the days of his flesh, he's offering up prayers and supplication. He's doing the work of the high priest before he's even appointed. And he's offering what? What? Prayers and supplications. Why would a hymn from the first century focus on this? We can think of the life of Jesus and think of many instances of his prayer life. We don't have time for that today. We might do that in coming weeks to try and rekindle a commitment in our church to gathered prayer. But the point here is not to locate one instance like the garden at Gethsemane in the story. Because he's framed it already by saying, in the days of his flesh, meaning all of them. As he walked among us, he is offering up prayers and supplications. Jesus's life could be summarized in this way. A long, drawn out, agonizing prayer to the Lord. Why? Why? He didn't survive and endure as a human being trusting in God in any different way than you are called to. Jesus can be our great high priest and be sympathetic to us because he had to appeal his needs, his fears, his concerns, his anxieties to the Father and it was agonizing. Maybe, in fact, as he is praying, as he is, as we're going to see in a little bit, learning obedience, just like we have to. Maybe he even remembers and knows exactly what that fellowship was like with the father. And it's so much more painful for him to endure this separation, this taking on of weakness and working out of the perspective of our limitations. And he feels it and he longs for the return of that fellowship with the father And it was never broken fully, that's impossible. But it is intentionally limited and made difficult. Jesus had to endure and trust in the father just like you do. So why focus on prayer? Why would a hymn select his prayers to focus on? I would argue that this is the first and also the final expression of how good your relationship with the Father is. From the first cry of faith, Lord, save me. To our final breath, Lord, receive my spirit. Everything for the Christian. We're to pray without ceasing. And that command is something Jesus had to obey, too. And so his whole life, an appeal to the Father in faith. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness because he endured it like we have to. There's a whole lot of in between in prayer. We've got to obey. We have to work. We have to do our day to day. But we're commanded to pray without ceasing. That's Jesus' life. He had to deal with the distractions and anxieties of life just like we do. He got tired. The God of all the universe subjected himself to weariness and fatigue. For you. So that when you are under weariness and fatigue and you can't pray rightly, you don't know the words to use, Jesus can say, I know. I know. And not just prayers and supplications, not some ritualistic offering these prayers but with loud cries and tears. As an aside, I constantly try to have us as a church because I know how much I need to be fanned into flame with regard to prayer. I'm trying to always take an opportunity to fan into flame a commitment to prayer. Does this prayer life of Jesus sound anything like your prayer life? Jesus had to cry out and shed tears, not as a ritual or an, or an act. They weren't fake tears. The life of faith and trusting the Lord is difficult, and he felt it. This taking on the form of the servant was a long line of suffering. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The father is the one he was praying to. As an aside, he's not praying to saints or angels. He's appealing to the father who was able to save him from death. The father is the only one who is able to save him from death. And let me clarify, and this is the big point of this phrase, not from dying. Jesus knew from the beginning that he was going to die. You can look, you can skip forward. It's not spoiling anything. Hopefully you've already read all of Hebrews multiple times. Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when the Christ comes into the world, he says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burn offerings and sin offerings, you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, he knew when the Christ comes into the world from his earliest moments of human consciousness, he knows I'm going to die. So he's praying to God. He offered up supplications and prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from being dead. This passage echoes what Paul says of Abraham and what the author of Hebrews say of Abraham. So he knows that he's going to die. Jesus does, and he is appealing his entire life in the days of his flesh to him who is able to save him after death. Just like you and me and just like Father Abraham, as he is going to offer Isaac, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead to keep his promise. So as Jesus is on the long road to Jerusalem. As his whole life was, his whole life in ministry on the long road to Jerusalem, knowing that he would be pierced and killed and crushed for our iniquities. He is appealing to God with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from that. He had to share the faith of Abraham, too. Jesus had to trust God like you and I are called to every day. He believed against hope that God would raise Him from the dead. Jesus didn't need to be saved from His own sins. He had no sin. Ever. But He needed to be saved by the Father all the same. From death, the final enemy, the final boss, the one we will all have to face, the one we will lose to. But, through faith... Death's victory over us will not be the end. And Jesus experienced this to the full. He tasted death, not just his own death, tasted death for everyone. He became the accursed, the condemned, the most vile thing that has ever existed is when Jesus took our sins on himself. Do you fear, O Christian, that God has anger or frustration or distaste or wrath towards you or that he is through with you? He's not. And the glorious truth is not only does Jesus' death remove the wrath of God, remove the frustration, remove the I'm through with you from you. But in experiencing that, Jesus is able to say to you, I know what it feels like to be forsaken. I know what it feels like to be under the frustration and wrath and anger of God. You're not under it because what I have done, but I know what you're experiencing. I know what your fears mean because I took it on myself. That's how he can be a sympathetic high priest. Because in our yearnings for forgiveness and in our fear about our sin and our understanding of our guilt, we fear to approach God. And Jesus says, I know. I know. And he was heard because of his reverence. This is the next phrase. You would offer up... Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And I'm still trying to receive to understand what the author is saying here. This is this is crazy. It's not crazy. It makes sense. We're the ones with limitations. Jesus, the eternal son of God, co-equal with God, was heard. Meaning, in his prayers and supplications that he offered up with loud cries, he was heard with respect to those because of his reverence. The resurrection was always plan A. It was always going to happen. It is God's eternal plan for all time. It is impossible for Jesus to remain dead. But... With God, there is always a reason. It's not just a just because thing. The resurrection because, yeah, the resurrection. There's a reason and God plans what the reason is for everything. And in this case. It's because of his reverence. So even though Jesus was coming back from the dead and it's always the plan, it's always going to happen. It was accomplished through Jesus's reverent prayer. So if you can imagine yourself in a situation where one day you can ask God the Father a question, Heavenly Father, why did you raise Jesus from the dead? His answer would be because Jesus prayed reverently. That's stunning. That is glorious on so many levels. And it informs us of so many things, including teaching us about what prayer does. It's always the plan of God for Jesus to come back from the dead. It's always going to happen. It can't not happen. But the reason God answers, the reason he does it and he acts in that way, what he's thinking of relationally and personally is because his son prayed reverently. The author wants us to know and feel that glorious truth. Jesus had to pray reverently too. And he wasn't given special treatment because he was the son of God. Do you ever feel prayer is hard? Do you struggle to have a reverent posture? Do you struggle to have a focused attitude towards God. Jesus didn't get to skate through life with everything being easy because he was perfect. He had to pray reverently and he can be your sympathetic high priest, your sympathetic great high priest, because in the days of his flesh, he received no special treatment because he was the son of God. And this is embodied in the next phrase, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is a difficult passage, no matter how you slice it, but becomes very much more clear in context. The point here is not that Jesus had to become obedience or that he had to obey as opposed to sinning in the past. But that he doesn't get a pass, he doesn't get to avoid the hard training, he doesn't get to avoid the difficulty just because he's the son of God. Step by step, day by day, he had to learn obedience, to experience, to go through the process of obeying God at every moment. An example I would give of this is, uh, I've now completed my third stint with TD Ameritrade, it's over now. Uh, But each time I've been rehired, so twice I've been rehired, I've had to go through essentially the same training. And so I've known all that they were telling me the entire time for those two rehires. But I still had to go through it. And that's not a perfect illustration because you don't know everything, but Jesus knows everything and he subjects himself to go through the training. To go through the difficulty, to go through the trial, just like you and me. We have to say a few words about this statement. He didn't just learn obedience, he didn't just live life. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffering is uncomfortable and unpopular, but it's necessary. And we can very quickly jump to the conclusion. Well, that's just Jesus, right? That's just Jesus who has to learn obedience and come into all that God is doing for him through suffering. No, it's for you and me too. And that's the point Paul makes in Romans 8. That we have hope in the resurrection. We have hope in what Jesus has done for us. If we share in his sufferings. Being conformed to him. The way God works obedience in us is through allowing us and bringing even suffering into our lives just like Jesus. So this helps us even make sense of our own suffering and our own trial that we are joining the path that Jesus was on and he didn't get a free pass because he was the son of God. He walked through it and experienced it more fully and drank more fully of the suffering of this life than all of us. And being made perfect. have got to pause there because it's another difficult passage and maybe the difficulty with some of these phrases is why the idea of Jesus being our great high priest has fallen out of popularity. We don't talk about it. It's not part of our common discourse. Jesus is always perfect, so why does he have to be made perfect? In context, this is what he's saying. Jesus, before all time, when he is in perfect fellowship and communion with the Father, he's perfect. But he cannot, in that place, in that way, serve as your high priest. He can't. So Jesus had to be made perfect, made suitable to be your high priest. So this, this theme of him serving as your great high priest gives a reason behind his entire life. This is why he came to be made perfect. God could have just structured the entire universe differently and saved us in another way. But he designed it so that Jesus would come and experience all these things so that he would be made perfect and be able to serve in that role as your sympathetic great high priest forever. This is primarily expressed in his obedience, his obedience to death. Even death on a cross. Jesus's story had to be lived out. Until that final day, when he walks out of the tomb, triumphant over the grave and Satan and sin, he could not have served as your great high priest. And so he does all of it, he takes on the suffering, He he takes on the day to day to day, learning obedience for you. So do you find the call to obey every day? You're supposed to devote your life to God every day. You're supposed to endure every day. You're supposed to trust in him. You're supposed to, in faith, do everything. Does that sound daunting and hard? It is. And Jesus knows because he had to do it himself. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The great high priest, Jesus being our high priest, is why it makes sense at all that you can be saved through faith. Have you ever thought about that before? Like, why faith? Why why is me placing my trust in Jesus what saves me? Is it, is it another just because thing? Is God just doing it? Well, I just picked it that way because it's easy and I didn't want things to be complicated. So we'll just do faith in Jesus and we'll pick that thing. It's just as good as 50 others, but we'll pick faith in Jesus and then we'll move on. And that's how people will be saved. No. If you go back to the beginning of chapter five, he says, for every high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. This is how God operates. That always between him and you, there is someone who acts on your behalf. The Mosaic law, the priesthood Of the order of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, all of it was meant to be a shadow, not as like a new idea in God's mind, but this is how he operates. And he's showing us there will be one to mediate, to act on your behalf between me and you. And so Jesus becomes our great high priest because he can forever be that one who for all time stands between you and God and offers sacrifices in relation to sin. So your trusting in him, your faith in him, means that he's my high priest. When God says to you, if he does, we don't know exactly what he's going to say, but if he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You don't list your good deeds. You don't even list, well, I believe this and that. I was a good Baptist. Jesus is my high priest. I put my faith in him. He's the one who represents me in relation to you. That's all I've got. And that brings you into the kingdom. That's why faith in Jesus matters. And He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. It'd be very easy and quick for me to just pass over that idea. Because we like for it to just mean, well, for those who believe certain things about Jesus. But for the author of Hebrews, obeying and holding fast our confession and having faith, they all mean the same thing. Do you obey Jesus? Who do you obey? You cannot honestly claim to have faith in Christ if you are not fully committed to obedience to him from the heart. This is exactly what he's meaning by let us hold fast our confession. Let's live it out. We can't just believe things in our mind about Jesus and expect that to be okay. It has to be evidenced by our life. And that's why we spent so much time on the verse to exhort one another. Because it's not just making sure we all check a box of things we believe. Read a statement of faith. Yes, I believe it. Sign your name on it. We're good. Right? No. We must exhort one another so that we would hold fast to our confession, that we would obey him in faith. Jesus will work for you as your savior forever. He became the source of eternal salvation to those who believe. Jesus isn't just gonna help you through your life. His main goal towards you is not to give you a nice pretty experience in your life. If that were true, then the majority of the apostles and all of the martyrs, their life would be a mess and wouldn't make sense within the confines of Christianity. His goal is to be your source of eternal salvation. Billions of years from now, He will be your savior. Billions of years from now, He will be your high priest. And everything He did, in his life was to enable him to work and serve forever as your high priest. And he does it happily. He doesn't get tired of ministering and acting on your behalf and to relate in relation to God and bringing your concerns to the father and bringing God's blessings to you. He's going to do it forever. He's going to serve in this role for you. Forever. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is another cliffhanger. We can't get into everything that is in there about Melchizedek. I'm looking forward to that day. And maybe I'm going to name my next son Melchizedek. Poor guy. But this should excite you. Because if you don't know at all what that means, or all of the riches in this idea of Jesus himself, the son of God, being appointed as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a guy you've maybe never heard before. That should excite you because there's that much more area and that much more journey for you to learn about your savior. It's who he is. The emphasis here is at least this idea. The forever, he said. He became the source of eternal salvation. And the reason he can say that Jesus serves forever as a high priest is because he is connected to this order of Melchizedek. And this is exactly what David says in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David is reading his Old Testament and he prophesies that one will come, that God will appoint as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has become this great high priest for us forever. It will never not be the case that Jesus will be your high priest, your great high priest. So my... Encouragement to you is that as you seek to know who Jesus is and come to know your savior and relish in the treasure that is the knowledge of Christ, that you would be stirred and that you would pursue knowing him in this way, as he will be for you forever. So just a few things to say in closing. Walking in pride or self-righteousness cuts you off from the ministry of a meek and sympathetic high priest. Think of that. Jesus went through everything he did, experiencing life in the broken and weak way he did so he could relate to weak and broken and fragile people. So if you set yourself in a different category, I am strong, I have it together, then you're cutting yourself off from his ministry to you. All of this work that Jesus did to relate to the bruised reed and the smoking flax, it doesn't make sense if you perceive yourself as strong and as having it all together. Anyone who thinks he knows, let him be humble and understand that he knows nothing at all. Second, for those who are strong, those of us who are at a place where maybe we can eat the solid food of the mature teachings of Christ, those of us who are mature spiritually, even if we think ourselves that way, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Because that's the example set by us in Christ. How patient and how kind and how merciful and how gentle has Christ been with you. And that is how you must be towards your brothers and sisters in Christ that you perceive as weak. Also, a warning to the stiff-necked. The stiff-necked are those who will not bend or yield to the call to repentance. All of this gentleness, all of this mercy, all of this kind in treatment is for those who understand they are broken and in need of a merciful Savior and High Priest. And if you are stiff-necked, if you persist in unrighteousness, you are presuming on God's kindness, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Instead, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the final day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do not presume on Christ's gentleness that if you remain stiff-necked in your sin, unwilling to Repent that this mercy, this kindness, this gentleness will be for you. And then I want to end with an entreaty to the weak. These last 20 days or so have been uh, really hectic for myself, and I know for many of you, and many of us are sick and weary. And what God does through times of intense difficulty and suffering and even tragedy is to make us understand that we're not as strong as we think we are. And we need a merciful and sympathetic high priest that we would draw near to God as he truly is in his son, that we wouldn't try to get our spiritual resume straight and in line in order to approach God. We would bring our mess to him and ask for his forgiveness. And even if things on the outside don't get any better at all, we know that we have a sympathetic, gracious, merciful, gentle High Priest who will give life to our mortal bodies one day. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are very prone to just want the milk the simple, the basic. Help us see clearly that even the simple and the basic truths about you should lead us to want to know more. Help us understand that it's not an intellectual pursuit to see you as our great high priest, but it is our very life that we can now approach you with humble confidence because you have gone through all of these things so that you could confidently say to us, I know. May today be the day of salvation for someone here today. Maybe for the first time they have heard all that Jesus has done to enter our weakness. Not as a cruel, moral policeman, but as a broken and weak and sympathetic great high priest. We plead the blood of Christ as the only way that we can approach you. Pray these things in his name for his sake.